Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Our listeners might remember just about nine months ago, we hosted Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller on this podcast for a wide ranging discussion about homelessness in Albuquerque. As part of that conversation, we talked about the big project that's been on the horizon for a while, that being the Albuquerque Gateway Center, a place where a lot of people are referring to it sort of colloquially in the city as the city's future homeless shelter. But we know that the plans for that are not just about housing people overnight. In our September interview, the mayor talked about summer 2023 being a big milestone for this project. By this summer, the city aimed to have the shelter ready to help about 750 people a day, with that number including 50 overnight beds and a medical respite center where people with health issues needing shelter will have a place to go well before moving on to the next step. So here we are now at the end of June, and we wanted to check in with the city about its goals at the Gateway. Where are things at with the Gateway Center? Who's getting help now? And what's next for the expansive and ambitious project? This week, we're talking with two experts in this field, Carol Pierce and Gilbert Ramirez with Albuquerque's Family and Community Services Department. Now, Carol is the department director, while Gilbert is the deputy director overseeing behavioral health and wellness programs within the city. So Carol and Gilbert, thank you both for joining us here. Thank you. We're delighted to be here to talk about this very exciting community project. Yes, thank you for having us. Yeah, so let's get into what we like to call the nuts and bolts, the broad overview of the big Gateway Center project. As we understand, the city did open some emergency overnight beds for men and women this past winter, but then since April, it's been about 60 beds specifically for women. Can you go over first what is available at the Gateway Center now How many beds and services are operating currently? Well, ever since the city purchased this in 2021, and again, we always want to begin with thanking the voters because it began with the voters passing a bond issue in 2019. And so when the city purchased that in 2021, there were services available starting then. So our tenants there, which still are three accredited hospitals, as well as several other tenants providing behavioral health or wraparound services are there now. And then we're adding new ones such as like the New Mexico Alliance for Mental Illness. We estimate that right now there's about 350 people going in and out of that facility every day. And that's so important. We, our vision with the community is this remains a place of healing and hope as it was for so many years for so many people in our community. Albuquerque's long-awaited Gateway Center opened phase one with room for up to 60 adults during the cold months. Officials say 2023 is going to be a landmark year for the long-awaited Gateway Center. This year, they hope to reach half capacity, helping at least 500 people a day, including those who need overnight shelter. The emergency shelter. So we did emergency shelter because it winter and the city, along with partners in, in the winter, were housing over a thousand people every night to make sure people were safe and off the streets. And a piece of that component did include the gateway over at our Gibson Health Hub. And we, during the winter, we housed about 185 people and that was split roughly between men and women. 
Right now, we've got about 35 women. We're usually fairly full, and they're part of that gateway program, which is a 90-day program with wraparound services to really ultimately exit to what's next, which could be housing, could be other services. So just to be clear, the uh, winter emergency program that was stood up kind of in the winter to help men and women, that has since kind of transitioned out while this building is still under a lot of construction and there's maybe just the women being sheltered there right now, or correct me if I'm wrong. No, that, that's exactly right. Over the winter, it was overnight winter, and then they would go back into the community for services. And now this spring, we've rolled that into the Gateway Services, our 90-day program. And they're not yet in the permanent space in that facility that's um, almost complete, had a few construction delays there, but the program that we've had so much success in at our Family Housing Navigation Center is what is being implemented at Gateway. And I would love to talk about what we're doing with families because it's all connected to the system of care for people who are unhoused in our community. A question a little bit to that, as I understand kind of a a women-focused program, but kids and families can be a part of that, it sounds like, as well. Um, but with the women focus program, is that continuing into the future? And, and I'm curious if you can maybe share some impact on the, or shed some light on the impact of that. Well, we chose to start with women because they are about 20 times more likely, if you are a female identifying person on the streets of Albuquerque, to be 20 times more likely to experience violence uh, on our streets. So we chose to start with women, and it's going even more beyond that. One of the pieces that we're very committed to addressing along with our community partners are the racial disparities. That is embedded in what we're really trying to address at Gateway in our services. I think, you know, when we were looking at the design as far as what the community needs were, what the assessment was, uh, we saw gaps, right? And there are gaps for women who can seek safe shelter. Not all women prefer to be in a congregate setting in which there's men, women, right? And how we separate that out. Granted, our our shelter on the west side does serve uh, single adult men and women. And at one point it did as families. And we will talk about how we shifted that approach. But prioritizing a population that ultimately was more at risk and also there were safety issues in the community is what kind of drove us to look at let's how do we first launch these initial beds to provide better care and shelter for female populations that are in our, in our community, right? Our women. Um, so just background and contextually really looking at what our community was saying, what our needs assessments were saying and what was missing and how do we fill that gap? How is that going so far? Like, are there any personal stories or personal impacts that you can share with us? This is a piece of a system of care of which we need our nonprofit organizations, our County partners, the VA, and UNM to really address the gaps and to build this out. So I can say that at our our gateway, yes, we have our community partners are referring women in there. I can speak to um, a woman who had uh, lost her housing. She also was needing to get connected over to VA. She was on our street. She had a a large, beautiful dog, and she had many suitcases. She had lost her apartment for a variety of reasons. So it was quite late one evening. Our Heading Home is our partner that helps operate the Gateway Center over at the Gibson Health Hub. And... That team came in the van to pick her up. 
And the story was, she thought, well, no, I can't go there because I've got a dog. And I said, no, no. We have reduced as many barriers as we, as we can. And having pets, which are really part of your family, is highly important. You can have pets at the west side. You can have pets at the gateway. Her next thought was, is honestly, she kind of tossed a, a rollaway suitcase like what? And I said, well, do you not want that? She said, no, I mean, I won't be able to take that over here. I've got these four suitcases. So I just said, no, no, if you want that, that's what we have the space, we have the storage. And so the van picked her up. Now, her story continues as, as the wraparound services um, are offered. But I think what that story illustrates in the word that we're trying to get out there in our community is that we're breaking down barriers. And as Gilbert's saying, we listened to the community. We did focus groups with people who are unhoused. We did focus groups to say, how does this design need to be? I mean, kind of the lingo is we talk about trauma-informed, but what that means is, how is it welcoming? How are we meeting people where they're at on this journey and know that they've come to us because they've had some kind of trauma in their life? That's the root source of most people, if not all people who are unhoused. We mentioned this was an ambitious project from the get-go. If you haven't seen it, it's a big building, the old Loveless Hospital at the Gateway Center. Wanted to talk a little bit about the construction portion of it because it is an ongoing process. The old Loveless Hospital was built in the 60s. It sounds like crews did have to do a lot of gutting of the interiors to refresh and remodel. In April, our colleague Larry Barker reported on the issue of asbestos found in an area on the second floor of the gateway, which resulted in an OSHA investigation and some delays. Can you just catch us up to speed a little bit on what's the latest with that, if people are curious about it? And with a building this old, how is the city handling ongoing construction and testing for hazardous materials? Yes. So when we purchased that building two years ago, we knew it was an older building. And part of that purchase included an environmental assessment to look. And even at that time, mitigation was done for asbestos. We knew there was asbestos in that that facility. On our second floor, we missed a step in that construction. And then we identified area where it was non-friable asbestos. And that was mitigated in about two weeks. So we had about two weeks delay there. But whenever we do any construction, as we're doing in sobering and respite, and we'll talk about all the components there, the first step is that assessment's done and any mitigation of any environmental concerns is handled. Does it put you behind at all any bit more? Well, Chris, what's put us behind schedule is really the supply chain. What so everybody's experiencing this in our community is the supply chain of everything from doors to hardware to the equipment. That has been um, our biggest challenge. I will say, though, that in spite of those delays with supply chain, we are really excited that the community supported buying an existing building. I count my lucky stars every day that we decided not to do new construction. Number one, we would have doubled or tripled the cost to do new construction that we see that cost per square foot go every day. And in spite of this being an, an older building, um, we're navigating that. And this was a known place in the community. And because of the size, we're going to be able to provide those wraparound services. 
this facility has uh, represented a lot for the community, especially in that part of town. And to be able to revive it and continue to allow it. I mean, it goes beyond just, you know, the social service component, right? There's an economic impact. There's businesses who are in that area. There's folks who will utilize those services. And then there's employees who will be hired that ultimately will go eat at the local restaurants and utilize the mechanics who have shops around that area. And so for us to make a jump like this, to acquire a facility this large, yes, it's a challenge. uh, But at the same time, we realized what a pillar it was. I mean, me personally, I had my tonsils pulled out in that hospital in fifth grade. Um, My wife and I, our first daughter, you know, um, our doctor was there and we took Lamaze classes there in the education facility, uh, which is beautiful, (laughs) right? Um, So it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But this is a real opportunity to bring it back to that shining star that it was in a lot of different ways, right? Not just for the service components that we're bringing, but for that whole community area. So I do want to kind of continue on with that construction. We talked a little bit about some of the different programmatic elements that are going to be wrapped up, I think, with the completion of construction. So continuing on that conversation with construction, I understand there's multiple areas and I think it's probably best if we maybe take these one by one. So I wanted to start with the medical respite center. Can you tell us what is that? What's the problem now? How will a medical respite center solve issues? Chris, and the medical respite is one of five core components. So thanks for starting with that one. The city, along with partners, conducted a needs assessment about six years ago that said this is a gap in the system. So if you and I go to the hospital and the doctor says, man, you have a bad gash, go keep that clean, elevate your leg, we go home and we do that. If you are unhoused, you can't keep that clean, nor can you keep that leg elevated when you're out on the streets. So right now, our community does have a few respite beds out there in a few locations and partners, but we need more. So medical respite will add 50 beds. We estimate based on the data that the average length of stay will be about 45 days. And we're doing that in partnership with um, First Nations and Albuquerque Healthcare for the Homeless and our UNM partners have been front and center to that. The gravity of this issue and what medical respite beds brings to our community is huge. I oversaw a system of care meeting uh, during the pandemic in which I had all the major hospitals logging into this meeting. I had UNM, Presbyterian, Loveless, ourselves, the state, county partners. All of us were triaging and coordinating discharge of care of unhoused folks into the next level of care, right? So whether they had COVID and another health issue, where do they go, right? And you can understand that these hospitals were already inundated with a huge push to get folks out of the hospital. Well, there was no other place them. And so that challenge alone, and it's existed, it was just kind of exacerbated when we started seeing the pandemic coming. What, where do folks go? What is, how big is this gap? And so our thinking all along the line is, in all honesty, folks who are unhoused still deserve a place to heal, uh, a place to recuperate, and not also re-enter into a very costly system and put pressure and drain on our emergency departments, our hospital care uh, uh, workers who were already taxed during the pandemic, right? You will cycle in and out of expensive and urgent care if you don't have a place to heal with something that could be mitigated. So, you know, it's hard to put dollars and cents to everything, but think about how much an ED visit costs if you have insurance and then if you don't. Um, And then think about if you have to go back every three days because your wound is now infected because you didn't have a place to heal in an environment that was safe, someone tending to your wounds, right? It's It's a gap that most of us have the privilege of not having to worry about. But unfortunately, this population doesn't have that luxury and they cycle in and out of very costly systems. And they put a 
uh, attacks on healthcare workers who are already taxed through the pandemic and coming out, right? Like these systems are strained. So this brings a model that we're seeing nationwide. It's not just us who are implementing medical respite centers and sites for folks to heal in a better way in care and avoid costly, you know, uh, levels of care in other systems. When might this medical respite center be completed and how many people will it serve? We're anticipating medical respite should be done in the next year, again, barring the supply chain issues. And we're trying to front end that in every way we can by what we're ordering. And we that will be 50 beds. Um, and again, using existing infrastructure over there. If I may, I'm, gonna, I'm going to name another service because it all they all connect. So when we talked about the overnight beds, and that's what we is our front and center where we've got the women there now. They'll be rolling into the permanent space, but that program after you've left respite and you've gotten healing, you may go into the overnight area for this. And we frame it as a 90-day program because we've had so much success at that at our Family Housing Navigation Center. It's a proven model. Other providers also have similar where you're doing wraparound with case management to address people's needs all toward what that next step is. So respite, well, Gilbert's talked about how important that is. It's all the wraparound and the connectivity in one building that may be the next step where you may go into that overnight bed. Or let's say there may be an addiction issue or something else going on. Our partners, whether it be Turquoise Lodge, Haven Behavioral Health, there could can be other connectivity there as well. And, and to connect one other piece too, at the state level, there was legislation passed and there's also uh, under the Medicaid uh, opportunities and services that can be built to enhance coverage for medical respite services for those who are in-house, right? So, there's levels of staging up for this, but where are the facilities? <laughs> where exactly do they receive the services, right? So how do you align that and then bring that funding, that level of care, and then to the actual people and how that translates? So we're one piece of a larger system, and we appreciate the state took some action last year, uh, making this a priority for funding for folks in, in our community, in our state, that will support that treatment and care by our providers. I also understand there's another component as well, the medical sobering center part of this. And we wanted to talk about that. It sounds like also kind of one of those pillar programs. It's different from the idea of that medical respite. So let's talk about what is it? How many people will, will it serve? What is the goal of that sobering center part of this? Well, thank you for that. You know, uh, I wish I could take all the credit to say, you know, this is a project uh, I've been overseeing and that I brought it, but the gap for the need for a medical sobering center has been identified well when the behavioral health issues kind of started in, in, in 2012, right? We saw loss of services. We saw uh, a lot of agencies shut down and we just started to see what is missing in our continuum of care for folks. What we don't have in the state of New Mexico in Albuquerque in our county is a medical sobering center. A lot of folks wonder, well, what is that, right? We do have a social model uh, sobering center that the county runs and, and that's dictated by the funding that they have. But what about medical oversight for folks who are inebriated, intoxicated and need a safe place to be able to sober? Very simple concept, right? I think in the past it's been referred to as drunk tanks and it was the jail. <laughs> right? Not the best way to address that. You know, we can't necessarily criminalize that, but we do have folks out there who oftentimes, I think, sadly, they're referred to down and outs, but we see people in our community on, on bench parks and, and they're laid out and there's a lot of folks concerned, like, are they okay? And so they call 911, right? That taxes one system to go out, check on their care and then find out what's going on. And ultimately, maybe it, it, it enhances it to AFR coming out and then 
back to the ED, <laughs> right? Again, costly care. Emergency rooms is like the last resort where you want to get to. Um, so medical sobering is going to bring medical oversight for folks to receive services probably just under 24 hours because it's not more than a day, right? On average, uh, and these do exist in our nation, you're looking at anywhere from three hours to max 12 hours of care and oversight. But creating a facility that allows both our first responders and our police department to say, we don't need to sit and wait at an ED to hand this person over to them because they're already overwhelmed. We have a facility we can take immediately and you get back to your job and go do the care you need to in the community while we have medical oversight of folks who are sobering. Now, as far as the substances that we're, we're seeing out in our community, we're seeing everything. Alcohol continues to be the number one issue in our state. I mean, a lot of folks, there's a lot of attention on fentanyl and I'm not going to say it's not an issue. But alcohol is the number one uh, substance that's, that's resulting in death for a lot of folks in, in our state, right? Um, under that, you have stimulants, uh, methamphetamines, and then you have fentanyl, right? So we've looked at all of this data. How do folks have a safe place to be able to sober with oversight to make sure we lose no lives, right? This is about overdose prevention. This is harm reduction. This is best practice for folks to be able to enter into a facility, get the care they need, and then discharge. And then what a wonderful opportunity to have the clinical services in the facility and the peer support recovery specialist to be able to talk to individuals who've lived that life and come out of that path and say, are you ready for a change? Are you on a pathway to get something different in your life going? And if so, how do we connect you to that, right? So it offers so much. And, and again, you know, med sobering, our design initially was phased out in three phases. We were going to do 20 beds, then 40 beds, then 60 beds, right? Budgetarily, financially looking at all of that. I'm very uh, happy to say that with our partners who have uh, supported us with funding, and, and I do have to say Bernalillo County, they gave us $4.35 for the construction of this. We reached out to our federal delegates and both Senator Heinrich, Representative Stansberry, another uh, two and another $2.2 million to support this project. So we received state junior bill money uh, for operations, another 200000 there. So overall, $8.75 million accumulated, and the budget for this project was about eight point five. So we're just sitting right at where we should be. The good news is uh, we're going to open with 50 beds. We're not going to phase this out in 20, 40, then 60. However, that will be our max capacity. We do have some flex space in there to be able to add five to 10 more beds if we need it, but we're gonna see what comes in. And, and we're very excited that, you know, right now we had our kickoff meeting June 12th, just left a construction meeting this morning. All those issues that we talked about, environmental assessments, all the areas that we have to drill into. It's so intricate, you know, we have tenants above us, below us in the space that we're redesigning. So everything we have to tap into that may affect their programming, uh, may affect water. <laughs> we got to shut the water off to do this phase. Well, they have patients. Can't just do that, right? There's a lot of intricacies to that coordination. But I'm very excited because our team has been very methodical around making sure moving forward with this is going to happen. So demos happening. Um, our goal was to have this up and running by the fall. I think at the latest we would see because of these construction delays, and, I, and I'm not sure folks are aware, but like cast iron is something that's just not available. <laughs> and so cast iron materials for a lot of our couplings and other things like that are on delay. With that being said, I would say first quarter of spring uh, 2024, you know what I mean? Early on, that is our goal to get that up and running and then side by side, have an operator in place to be able to come in and provide those services. Could I add one thing that just underlines something that's so important? We estimate, and I think this is very conservative, by having Albuquerque Fire and Rescue have another option and not to gum up our ERs, which that's not where we, we need them. It's over 
a million dollars every year. And I think that's very conservative, about 43,000 calls a year where we anticipate they can be diverted, if you will, and those first responders will take them directly to med sobering. So it's a community lift up when the people that really need to go to those hospital emergency departments for the care that they need can go there. And I also want to underline, as you hear us continually talk about the system of care, the county operates the care campus, and that's really important. It's a social model for um, sobering. This, as Gilbert said, is medical sobering. We're having the conversations with the county. First responders, take them to where they need to be. This will be medically staffed. Medical sobering doesn't exist right now, but connects to the other services in town. And, and just to highlight, that, that's so important in regards to next level of care, right? It's not just sobering. It's if they're in a place of change, then we connect you to our partner who can do detox. And from detox, you can go into sober living. Like those conversations are happening for programming because they're vital. And how we coordinate that, have transportation to the goal of this is to lower the barriers, right? To get folks into the, the, the care they need most immediately. Because when you tell someone, sure, but it's three months out. Right. <laughs> You're probably going to walk back to what you know, because that is a hard, challenging thing to say, I'm going to wait three months before I can get into detox. And also, um, the beauty of it is if we identify folks are in-house, shelter components right on site, right? If we need that connection, we have another state uh, detox facility on site that's down the hall. It's different when you got to walk down a hall than across town, right? And, and so that model of thinking of a facility that holds these partners in place, and we have folks approach us all the time who want to lease space, and we're being very mindful as to how do they serve the ultimate uh, support of the clients we're going to be serving so that we prioritize those partners in-house to make sure that we're lowering those barriers. And then just back to the facility and impact, you know, at, at 50 beds, we can serve roughly uh, 18,200 folks a year. We won't know if they're duplicate clients yet until we actually open. That offsets a huge fraction of folks that are going to the EDs and the ERs. And then lastly, I'll just say, you know, there's only about 40 medical sobering centers in the United States. None in New Mexico, none in Albuquerque, none in our county. So this is one huge first step for something innovative in our state and hopefully a pilot for other communities who might need this as well to learn from ours and then build theirs. Can I add one more thing? We love this topic. I know. Yeah. This, <laughs> we have more is, to get to. But. This is for New Mexico. I think it's so important for the listeners to hear. This will benefit Albuquerque, but we know as one of the central hubs for our mostly rural state, Albuquerque is where people do come for services. So when we look at who's contributed to make this happen, this was when the federal delegation, as well as the county state, this is for New Mexico, not just Albuquerque. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we return, more Q&A on the Gateway Center's ambitions and what comes after the projects that you heard they're working on right now. mentioned in our introduction, there's many components to this Gateway Center. We talked about a couple of those, the Sobering Center and the Medical Respite. Wanted to hit on the other two main ones, Carol, the Engagement Center and the Receiving Area. Can you tell us what are those and, and who will they serve? Well, the Engagement Center is part of our overnight beds. And this is where partners in the community will come where people can, people that are spending the night can access those services directly. We're in conversations with Workforce Solutions on what we can do to help get people access to those benefits. 
a local barber who wants to help be there, as well as Western Skies, our human resources department, not human. Re- MCO, they're a Medi- Medicaid provider yeah. for the state of New Mexico. Yeah. So those will be the resources again to not have to go all over town, but will be there. And I think at the end of the day, once a schedule's created with all those engagement center people, we will have a variety of people rotating through there. So that's an essential piece of the overnight beds while people are getting case management and housing navigation. The receiving area for um, first responders, right now we don't have one place where if somebody needed help, they can go. It's, It's either ER or a variety of spots. So this will be one place where a person's needs can be assessed and to identify, do you need this bed? Do you need to get into respite or sobering or some other services? Or do you just need assistance to get a bus ticket to get back to your community here in New Mexico? So there are lots of solutions there that we will have the folks to really assess what the needs are and to get those met. Right. And if I could add, you know, the city launched uh, Albuquerque Community Safety Department, right? It's the third third leg of our first responder unit. You know, a lot of cities are looking at different models to responding to behavioral health needs for folks in the community. The challenge with social service components sometimes are that, you know, they, they function much like we all do in our jobs, eight to five. So don't go into a crisis at 5.01 p.m., right? And or before 8 a.m. in the morning. Where do folks go? Where do we take them? We had to be very intentional as to what components would ACS need to be successful for the outreach they do as they're uh, gearing up their teams and staff 24 seven and response calls. You have to be able to provide a place for folks to go. Right. And again, EDs or jail <laughs> aren't necessarily the most appropriate places we can do better. We can respond better and we can have a place for that connection and the engage um, the drop off center is not necessarily one just to serve folks into our services at Gateway. If they are connected to other services, they've just fallen off or lost contact. Our, our job then is to reconnect them, right? But let us help you do that little triaging, figure that out and connect you to the provider that you're already connected with. We don't need to pull you away from that, but we want a space and place for that. So it, it's bigger than just the facility, but it's also a support component for our people who are out there doing the work late in the evening while we're sleeping. Um, for folks who need that help, right? And where do we take them? They could have a bed to stay while we get our case managers working on who you were connected to. And then by the morning, either transport you back to them, integrate you into our services, but how do we just respond better? After the projects that are wrapped into phase one, which we just talked about some of those things, after all of that stuff, then comes phase two. What is phase two? Well, and we're kind of really rolling this all into one as the financing is is identified and secured, which it is to move forward. It really, we will have 200 more beds for a variety for men, for couples, and they will be accessing that 90 day program and all the wraparound services there. And what we're doing now is we're looking at really simultaneous construction of all these different services happening. So I think people have heard about this Gateway Center project for so long. It's clear there are beds there, there are services there, but we also know that much of the work that's happening on the Gateway Center is targeting very specific populations and very specific issues. So I wanted to ask, you know, at max capacity for the the vision of this project, 
Will the Gateway Center be that place where virtually any unhoused homeless person might be able to walk in, go for the night, um, or get dropped off? Will it be one of those types of shelters? Is that part of the plan here? Well, I like to not call it shelter because is it providing shelter? Yes, it is. But shelter sometimes has a connotation that it doesn't have the wraparound services or the programmatic aspect to it. So the answer is yes, it's going to be available to serve our population and the system, the partners to refer people into that system. So there are other places, and as, as we talked about the first responder drop-off, it will be to get people connected back out into the, the system as well, where they may be already connected in services. So you can't just walk in? Our agreement with our neighbors, as they've had concerns, as, and they're, I think, excited to have the economic development happening, but we've had really good conversations with our neighbors. This is not a, a walk-up facility and it's not a walk-up facility, but there's a mechanism for people to get connected in. And we've seen that work right now with the women that are being served there. Now, when I say it's not walk-up, there are people walking in every day to get, get services within the, the tenants there, but we have transportation that will be provided. So with our partners that we're working on, just as even Gilbert described, even for sobering, maybe somebody goes from sobering, they need to get somewhere. It will be via transportation. I know the Westside Emergency Housing Shelter has been one of the big components that you guys have stood up over the Keller administration to be sort of the continuous front for maybe that shelter component that's kind of been just everybody, hey, here's a safe place to sleep overnight. So that is still going on at this point. Will it continue to go on in the future? I know there's also some programs built in there. Yes, it still will be there in the future because our community needs it. The community needs the gateway and all these services that we're filling the gaps, but it also needs a place where people can be safe, get food, and to begin that connection process. So that's why we see this as all very connected. I mean, the shelter existed prior to the Keller administration, but it operated as a winter shelter from November to March. But people still were unhoused in those other times a year. So we do operate it 365 days a year. It is for single men, single women, and couples. The couple component is filling a gap in the community right now. We, it is low barrier, as we said, you can have your pets. You um, just need to be able to walk, get on transportation and get out there, but you don't need to be sober. I mean, we need to meet people where they're at. We have advanced and, and complemented a medical clinic. We did really well during COVID, but now we staff that with partners such as First Nations, Healthcare for the Homeless, and operate wound care as well out there. You mentioned briefly, you've been in communication with the neighbors. We know we've heard from neighbors, but you know, at the start of this whole project and, and we still do, you know, concerns regarding an increase in homelessness and drug problems encampments in Southeast area of Albuquerque near Gateway. How are your partners and the Gateway Center addressing those community issues going forward? Well, first of all, we have ongoing dialogues. We have relationships. We have a monthly meeting with our neighbors and we call it our transformative neighbor meeting. And we call it that because we want to work together for the solutions. We'll bring in different departments from our city to talk about some of those solutions. 
we had a recent meeting, I think it was April, where we had a variety of different departments talking about encampments, the process. The neighbors had voiced some concerns and given us some specific properties. Well, those properties had been abandoned. They were under code enforcement. So we could begin to have that conversation. So are these conversations always easy? No, but we welcome the dialogue so we can all work on these solutions together. Big picture question I had, how long do you think it takes for the Gateway Center to make a noticeable difference in homelessness and in our community as a whole? I don't think the Gateway alone will do it. And I think that's the important message here. It's going to be an essential piece filling some gaps as we've talked about with respite, with sobering, with overnight beds, as well as the complement of the wraparound services. But what we need is to continue our Family Housing Navigation Center, opened up 2021, I might not quite have my year right. And that was born out of COVID, no longer having families out at the West Side saying it worked better and we are seeing 10 times the kinds of families that we were seeing than when they were out at the West Side. I'm proud to say using this gateway wraparound model, 90-day model, we have house a total of a thousand people. Half of those are children using that model. So that's a piece of the system. And we need all those components along with our partners to make the measurable difference. I have one final question here for you. How long and how much money do you think needs to go into this project in the long term? Because it does feel like it is a continual sort of thing that needs to be invested in. And this is a milestone sort of first big step. But also along those lines, when you think about money and time, you know, are you worried at all that this may be something that we don't see through based on the politics and elections and the changing nature that can happen with city government? I think the community will see how critical this is that um, we're not going back. We can't go back as a community. The voters voted for it. It's happening. It's moving forward. It's funded and it's here to stay. Is there anything else that you guys would like to add? I know you mentioned this is a 90-day program. You you mentioned that as being a component, but is there anything you want to like explain about that at all? Well, we use that language, but does that mean 91 days you're out? Absolutely not. But I, I give that as an example because it's a successful model. People may have a plan on what it is for them individually to get toward housing or toward that job or for addiction treatment. And the amount of days will vary, but it's built around a structure that works with the wraparound services and case management and housing navigation. Well, Carolyn Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us here for this conversation. I hope uh, our our listeners took away a lot more, hopefully, than, than what maybe perhaps they understand about the Gateway Center right now. We appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks again to Carol Pierce and Gilbert Ramirez for taking the time to answer a lot of questions from us just to educate our listeners a little bit more and us about where the gateway's at now and what's happening in that building. Yeah, it sounds like it will still be several years before the project is fully finished. But, uh, you know, hopefully the conversation here illuminates you to the, the different components that are happening here on the face of it. Sometimes we all think homeless shelter, it's just a place where people go and stay. But it's obvious, I think, from our conversation that it's a lot more than that. 
a lot of programs that are built into the core factors behind homelessness. So see how it all works out and more construction to come. You can reach me at chris.mckee at careqe.com and at chrismckeetv on social. And you can reach me at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening.